already PhD study is an isolated thing. But now I'm also physically removed. We had to find a way to create a community of practice that can be a dynamo of conversation that can keep the juices flowing. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. In this dialogue, we look at the Drama for Life PhD program in the Witt School of Arts. The program has just won the Faculty Teaching Award on behalf of the program's designer, Dr. Petro Janssen van Vieren, who is here as our guest, together with the head of the Drama for Life program, Warren Nieb. Warren, can you give us some background on DFL as an educational, as a research, as a community engagement project here at WITS and how it came about and what was the basis on which we're going to explore the PhD program specifically? But I think the background is important. Drama for Life started 11 years ago. It started initially as a major regional project that was to embrace all our African colleagues, specifically to address major health concerns on the continent, but through the lens of what is known internationally as applied drama and theater and drama therapy. Very quickly through the establishment, we realized that very disciplines of applied drama and theater and drama therapy and the content that we were engaging with was going to require a different way in which we worked, we taught, we researched. We brought together quite a comprehensive African contingent of scholars that were sponsored by the German government, actually, and that ultimately has represented over 19 countries on the African continent. So in our engagement with these two disciplines, which first and foremost are known as professions, drama therapy is an accredited health professions profession, and applied drama and theater has a long existence, particularly in developing countries. Applied drama and theater essentially encompasses development, education particularly and can be read through a social work and sociological kind of lens. It's about group, it's about community, it's about development. And originally, it was about addressing problems that communities would face. And our interest was in how we could learn from extraordinary case studies across Africa and begin to research and better understand how communities could be empowered to make better choices, to address growing regional problems like conflict, like water, like major environmental problems, like HIV and AIDS. And I think in our engagement with that, our intention also originally, because of the drama therapy piece, was to challenge traditional development studies, models and understandings, and education. And so we were really interested in the intersection between development, education, and therapy. And the other piece that was essentially missing in that configuration was the role of arts activism. So taking into cognizance very critical problems on the continent 
and at the same time the legacy of arts and what arts could do as a form of activism to engage people. And so we formally were established as a department in 2012 and we are very much an applied arts arts therapies and arts research department. That's really our focus. And when I say arts, I just go back again to our origins. One of the first things that our African scholars said when they arrived here was they couldn't understand for the life of them why the School of Arts was organized in the way it was, that there were these very separate and distinct disciplines. And while we fully acknowledge the need for these different disciplines and their spaces and their pedagogies, we're also very acutely aware that the applied arts and arts therapies are intersectional and interdisciplinary. In South Africa, the arts therapies have also become very distinct and they are legislated like that. And there's very little we can do about that. But there is an umbrella form and association of arts therapies. So we have this very interesting relationship between a legislated, highly legalized form of therapy in this country, one of the few in the world where we are centralized in the system and where we have to follow very ethical professional boundaries. And then this other space that is about growing a cohort of artists, facilitators, development workers, educators who are interested in how arts can not only be used and not only in a technical sense as a means to, but how art fundamentally plays a role in community, in the classroom, in developing a number of things that one can imagine that are essential to our present, our contemporary I think that in this engagement, what has led to the rise of the PhD program is that so many critical questions have arisen out of the studies. We've had a number of master students, exemplary pieces of research that have been undertaken and are quite a broad continuum. What holds us together is fundamentally our pedagogy, our understanding that the work that we do in applied and in the therapies is all about how we go about creating spaces of learning and healing. And those critical values and methodologies that come together to shape community systems, consciousness. And and in that engagement, we've had students who want to take that further. And there are very few spaces internationally that held this continuum. So we have our colleagues across the globe. Their feedback to us is, how have you managed to do this because this is what we've wanted to do? So the arts therapies are really trying to find a way in the States to situate themselves in a way that they remain relevant. They've almost become like the psychotherapies in the 80s where there was a movement towards psychology and research and less one-on-one therapy and group therapy and the art therapies have taken that space. In the applied space there's been this real need to try and engage with indigenous knowledge systems and spiritual systems as much as healing and psychology. And so this intersection that we've been exploring has raised lots of critical questions giving rise to PhD studies that move along this continuum. Petro, you've been the 
planner and organizer of this very innovative PhD program in Drama for Life. And you've actually, I congratulate you on winning the 2019 Faculty of the Humanities Teaching Award for this program. Warren has sketched the broad area where there was this expressed need for PhD from amongst your cohort of students who were honors and masters. Why would somebody want a PhD in this area that is so orientated towards activism and real-world engagement, where our understanding of a PhD is it's very much about academic accreditation for the higher levels of academic employment? Why then a PhD in this space of DFL? Because people want to understand the mechanisms through which the arts transform and heal. It's not just about doing the work, but about thinking about how and why the work is done and its effects, its impact. So many of our students either do a kind of action research studies where they go, how is the best way to go about accomplishing a specific objective through the arts. So I'll give you an example of a current study. How do I tell or train or design a program for primary children in Wackerstroom to understand how they can look after the wetland? So it's an action research. So I'm going to try a number of things and see if I can measure the impact of the educational program through the arts around environmental awareness. So that's a how question. Then there's an impact question. If I do X, Y, Z, what is the impact of this versus the impact of maybe doing it in a different way? So we have now just received a proposal for a PhD program that says, here's how HIV AIDS education has been using theatre, and this is what its impact has been, which is very little. This is a study in Lesotho. And here's how we want to try it. We want to try it through applied arts, and let's see if the impact is different. So there's a need to understand if what we are doing and the way we're doing it is making an actual difference. And then there are other studies around what are the systemic conditions that either enable or hinder the work, or enable or hinder the transformational healing effect of the work. So that's like Munyaradzi's research. He's analyzing policies and arts leadership and management to understand what are the contextual things happening that either support or hinder the work. So there are many different places where critical questions are being asked. And it is specifically usually about the relationship between the creative form and its agenda and that agenda's impact. Responding to this expressed need for PhD level research and obviously the degree. You have 11 candidates registered. How did you go about designing the program that you've implemented in 2017? Yeah. The character of the cohort is that the PhD candidate who's working in Mpumalanga, her fieldwork is there. We have a candidate working in Zimbabwe. In fact, there are two now. Their fieldwork is in Zimbabwe. And we had a candidate in Nigeria working with refugees. So it means that if that is where they work, it doesn't make sense for them to be present in Johannesburg. It makes sense for them to be present in the field. And then how do they access scholarship? How do they access uh, supervision? 
And how do they also keep their motivation up? Because already PhD study is an isolated thing. It's difficult. You're on your own, you and your supervisor. But now I'm also physically removed. So we had to find a way to create a community of practice that can be a dynamo of conversation that can keep the juices flowing. It's, it's like offering a space where the candidates can plug in so that they can recharge and then go out into the field and do their work and then plug back in. And another factor is, of course, that in South Africa and other African countries, a PhD scholarship seldom covers enough so that everything is covered. It usually covers tuition. So most of our students also have to work and many of them also have families. So then the work balance issue becomes difficult and we know that the PhD is like a plant. It's not a baby that screams and demands a reaction right now. It sits quietly in the corner. If it doesn't get watered, it dies. It doesn't scream at you. It maybe nags a bit in the back, but it's quite often easy to ignore the nag. So how do we keep people motivated? Because we also need to support them to get it done. So that's the kind of people we're working with. So we ended up on this concept of the community of practice where we want to create a peer support system and not rely solely on the supervisor relationship. And we decided to go virtual. So you can't actually create a virtual community of practice. You can create either a virtual community and then the community of practice emerges. The logic of a community of practice is that it's people who have the same interest and the same purpose and they are typically peer-motivated and non-hierarchical. And that is very opposite to the traditional supervision relationship or re university relationship. But a virtual community, because it needs an organizer that picks technology and organizes the group, is designed. It isn't emergent. So the relationship between these concepts is that a virtual community is created and held by somebody. I was the somebody in that case. But that the community of practice, which is the dynamo, the thing that drives the communication and drives the scholarship, emerges from that. So that's the logic of what we did. Or that's a theoretical frame. A very clear understanding that it has to be peer-driven. Also within our pedagogy. Because if it's supervisor-driven, it's not going to be motivating. It has to find an internal dynamo. Because it's the internal dynamo that will help the PhD student to finish the study. So we have to create something that is going to get that dynamo going and keep it going. And the peer energy is what... Um, from our pedagogy, we understand to be a very strong motivator in our space. I want to push you yeah. a bit on this. Now, I understand the peer energy and the importance of harnessing that and how much that has come out of the DFL approach mm. towards pedagogy. But you talk about moving away from the hierarchical model of a supervisor who knows and the PhD candidate who essentially apprentices herself to a knowledgeable supervisor. It seems to me in some ways you've just been expedient and dealt with the fact that you're in a department which doesn't actually have PhDs. You're the only one. And as a result, you can't really offer a large group of students an existing body of 
knowledge and expertise that they can apprentice themselves to. Yeah, okay, so I can speak to the supervision piece. I think that's why it's important to understand that there's the community of practice, which is a peer-driven motivator community, and then there's the design of the supervision side, which also links to the creating of a virtual community. Partly we like the virtual community thing because it gives us a way to access international scholarship, international supervision. So we have supervisors from Australia and Norway and Kenya and Botswana from all over, even Cape Town. From Warren's description, you can also hear that we're quite interdisciplinary. So students often need co-supervision. On top of the fact that we don't have existing PhDs in our department, one PhD is seldom enough to support a student's question. So we often need to create co-supervisor relationships. And how are we going to get that? So we don't have no supervision. We have strong supervision, but the supervisor's PhD student relationship isn't the one that keeps the student connected to his own motivation for doing the work. So we have to combine those two pieces. And the virtual space is how we do that. So to get quite practical, we do four things differently. And all four pieces have very strong virtual or technology components. The first thing that we decided to do was every month we have identified a year in advance, a weekend, where we will do dedicated writing. So I might be writing in my office or my bedroom in Zimbabwe or Botswana or Mpumalanga, but I know that in all these other places across the continent, other people are also writing. So we commit this weekend and we check in on Friday afternoons. The check-in itself is one of the specific pieces, but we check in on Friday afternoons so that everybody knows who's working this weekend. And then Saturday morning at nine o'clock on WhatsApp, so the virtual piece is WhatsApp, I go, who's working today and what are you working on? And people check in. I'm focusing on this and I hope to accomplish that. So that's the question. What are you working on and what do you want to accomplish this weekend? Sometimes we also say, who, who will read your work when you're done? Who will read the piece? How, how you, so there's an accountability bit. But that's not always applicable because um, cycles aren't that short usually. And then at the end of your working day, some people work early in the morning. So we can have some people coming in at nine o'clock to say, I've been working since six o'clock and I'm going to have breakfast now. And other people going, oh, I just woke up. I'll be getting going at 10. And everybody gets an idea of where everybody else is and what they're working on. And when you finish working for the day or for the weekend, that's open to the student or the candidate to say, this is what I accomplished this weekend and I'm checking out now. So there's this container. The second piece is that on the Friday, when we start our weekend, we have a online virtual check-in for an hour to an hour and a half, where everybody who's going to be working that weekend, or actually just anybody who can make that time, comes into a Zoom room, which is like Skype, except it's different. And you can see on the screen a little windows for every person who's in the conversation, and they typically say, here's where I am and here are my challenges. Um, sometimes we have uh, supervisors in that meeting every third time, every, yeah, every third, 
one, all the supervisors are also invited so that students can pitch specific challenges to supervisors. But in between, they just pitch the problems to each other. Because very often it isn't about solving that problem. It's about framing it or naming it so that you know what's going on in your own work. It's about soundboarding often. And sometimes you can get input from someone else who's been there where you are now or who's going through the same thing and had found solutions. And then we sort of brainstorm each person's challenge. Or if they don't have a challenge, they just say where they are and we talk a bit about it. That's more or less what happens. Often there's a lot of peer-to-peer advice going on. And if the supervisors are in the room, there's supervision advice. And it's wonderful because you get supervisor perspectives from supervisors that are not necessarily your dedicated supervisor. It's very, very vibrant conversations. And in that way, not only do the students get motivated on the PhD study, but they also get access to scholarship. All of us, we're building scholarship because this is a young field. It's not funny that I'm the only person with a PhD at Trauma for Life. It's because I think there are only three people in the country with PhDs in our field. Never mind the world. It's a young field. So we have to pool scholarship and we have to create and grow scholarship. And this is one of the other ways in which we can do that. The virtual community, the PhD candidates in the various parts of the continent, have they met physically at the beginning of the process or do they only encounter each other through the screen? We just had a conference now and we had one of the supervisors from Australia here. We had a couple of students, yeah, Courage from Zimbabwe traveled through. So suddenly people are meeting face to face that's only been meeting virtually and it was like they know each other from a long time. It's a myth that technology only separates. Technology has a huge contribution to connecting people. And so to answer your question, there aren't specific designed moments of physical meeting. It depends on events and moment to moment and whether or not a student has money. Usually to register, a student needs to be physically on campus. That's a moment when a student come in person, but they don't come together. They pop into my office and I see them. The supervisor, should that supervisor be in Johannesburg, get to see them. But it isn't an organized thing. It's not a holding container. It's like a watering hole moment now and then. But even a watering hole is usually a watering hole moment is sundown and (laughs) sun up. There isn't that kind of rhythm for us, except our conferences or yeah, when the, the individual student need to get here for some particular reason. And what do you expect of the supervisor relationship? So each one of your virtual students is working on a research project with the supervisor? Yeah, and often too. Often too. What is that? How do you manage that relationship? What is the expectation? So like any supervisor relationship, it has a certain amount of hours that the supervisor gets allocated and paid for. But it's up to the student and the supervisor to organize that how they want to. I do not get involved in that, apart from the initial contract, which is a general that's supervisor-student contract. I only get involved if, for some reason, the student and the supervisor are not managing to connect. And in the initial choosing of supervisors, that is very important because we have supervisors who do not want to work virtually. They don't. So that supervisor needs to be allocated a student who is present or can come and be present. So the initial matching is a very big deal, and that can take time. 
And then that relationship happens the way it usually does. And yeah, I don't really get involved in it. So you don't have an expectation in terms of how many drafts the student must produce? Other than what the university requires, six to 12 months, depending on part of my full time for your proposal. You know, so the general PhD journey for us is exactly the same as for any other PhD. So really the difference is in the virtual community that you create yeah. to support the candidates. Yeah. We've done two other things to finish my list where that question that you're asking has a different answer. We have created a short course called Preparing for Doctoral Studies in the Arts short course. It's a short course that's not unique only to the applied arts, so it's open to all arts. And that one is fast, more strongly regulated. In, within the first two weeks, there's a peer submission, then a supervisor submission, a peer submission, and a supervisor submission. So those are quite strongly regulated. It's like a three-month test drive of a PhD project. Test drive what it's like, what might, it might be like. Because students sometimes think, oh, I'll just sign up for my PhD part-time and keep on my life the way it is <laughs> to discover that, oh, um, okay, it's a little bit more work than I thought or I'm more underprepared than I thought or whatever the case may be. So... That is a very strong component of our offering because we've discovered that students are just not ready to step into PhD from masters. So there was this bridging necessary, and it's not just our field. Um, it also has a virtual component because we record all of the interactive the, the lecturers because there's there's lectures on how do you, I get from a research idea to a proposal or to a conceivable project. How do I get from that to a proposal and the components of a proposal. How do I choose a methodology? How do I design my research, et cetera, et cetera. So there's specific inputs. And those are streamed. They're, they're done on Zoom so that people who are not physically here can access those lectures online. They're designed on particular mornings. And they are recorded so a student who has to miss that specific morning can get that recording. So it also has a sort of a blended learning component. And then the other piece is just that we also play with embodied, our own art form online. That's more like playing than it is. It's leveraging our our own art form to process our PhD challenges, uh, which creates a very interesting challenge for how do I story or embody into an, a virtual space. I was going to ask you about that. Quite a lot of your PhD projects are involve creative work, and creative work would be what the student is working on, not just a written dissertation. Yes. So how is the creative aspect of the research handled in this virtual environment that you're describing? It isn't, because a virtual environment is not about their fieldwork. It's not about their art form. It's about the PhD journey and its progression. How it does show up in the virtual space, there are two ways. Firstly, the issues that they find in the field by doing their creative, so and questions around how do I research creatively, those questions come into the virtual conversations. So if I have 20 hours of dance footage, how do I process that data and interpret it. But asking how do I process and interpret that data isn't necessarily something I do in the cohort conversation. 
in the cohort conversation, we might go take it into the studio and ask yourself X, Y, Z and move through it. We might suggest somebody to use their own art form, to, but we don't do that in the virtual room. What we do do in the virtual room, remember, Warren, you were part of one of those. And this was at very beginning. So we had five people present in the workshop, two of whom were online. The other three were physically present. And we used an embodied process to play with ways to solve our PhD questions. So one of our students had trouble with his study permit. He couldn't get registered because of a study permit. And so it's just his frustration. It, it became more of a processing of his frustration session so that he could get the clarity to know what to do next because our art form can answer that question. What is the most appropriate next step for me? But then it's not about using the art form for the purpose of your research. It's for the purpose of working with your own stuff so that you can get to your research, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's how those show up in our PhD program space. What's intrigued me about Drama for Life is coming out of your real-world engagement and your concern about effects in the world on communities, on vulnerable groups. It seems to me that you in some ways lean towards or should lean towards quite conventional social science research methodologies because you make your intervention using drama or various forms of community engagement and then you want to assess the effects of that engagement and doesn't that lead you towards drawing upon social science methodologies absolutely i think with the PhD cohort at the moment, and Pietro can correct me if I'm wrong here, there is perhaps a mixed methods uh, orientation with a number of the students, and that there definitely is an engagement with different ways into the work that is informed by social sciences. And I certainly think that we're not scared of that either. I think that's part of our intersectionality and our interdisciplinarity. And without any doubt, if you're dealing with development, you're dealing with education, you're dealing with psychology, you're invariably going to need to grapple with a history of social science and quantitative and qualitative ways into researching. However, at the same time, we also have students, and this is more at the master's level, and it's manifested itself in that way. So we have master students who are just in drama therapy, for instance, who are really a representative of the broad continuum of research. So there are students who are actively choosing very traditional social science models in order to investigate. So, for instance, researching an integrated form of education that is policy-driven in this country with five-year-olds in a particular school, undertaking that piece of research through a social science lens, doing a very clear mixed methods research, and then writing it up notwithstanding that it involved embodied practice, a number of 
deeply engaging creative interventions in the process. But ultimately, the aim was to find out if certain strategic interventions would work and if it could speak back to the policy, a particular education policy in this country. Versus a student who will take on a performance as research methodology and embrace it not only just as method, but also as philosophical position in terms of the arts and engaging their research through a deep embodied process where the understanding is that the body knows first, that you can only come to the knowledge through working with the body as archive and as an instrument of intelligence. And that the creative process in itself is a piece of research. And I think that there's always a therapeutic element in that because these are drama therapy students. I think the students who go on to create pieces of theatre, there's always an element of either education or community building. Or I think that the purpose of the work always frames it. But it doesn't stop us from allowing the space for students to come into different modes of research. Just to clarify, your PhD program, it's not aimed at potential drama therapists, the students who are becoming part of that community of virtual scholars. What kind of PhDs are they working on? Applied arts or applied performance and drama therapy. But if they want to do a PhD in drama therapy, they are already drama therapists. So typically they've come across a question in their practice that they cannot answer or that they choose to answer through research. That's the relationship between the PhD and the therapy accreditation. We've had inquiries of students who are interested in the field of drama therapy and want to get a PhD in drama therapy without being therapists, and it doesn't really work. We've required them to complete the drama therapy. If they don't write the board exam, necessarily, they have to have a drama therapy degree because they want to impact the therapy through their research, and often that means undertaking therapeutic process and if you're not a registered drama therapist or a accredited one I don't know that you can just do the theory Warren I think you can talk more to that Without a doubt, because of the investigations and the work that we're doing in the arts therapy space there is a new generation that are beginning to ask the kind of questions that really rest in a PhD space so there's a whole new cohort coming along which is partly why we have a sense of urgency around us building up our resources so that we can cater for this new generation. And the issue is for us is that we need to be doing it because the questions that are being asked are really Africa-located and South Africa-located in terms of mental health, in terms of bridging the space between the arts therapies and indigenous forms of healing practice. So, for instance, you know, one of the areas that we're really interested in is and which our students are raising is the relationship between traditional healing and drama therapy. And people like Matsilo Matsai are beginning to ask very critical questions. So someone like that of that stature is talking about, you know, opening up the space to study and find the relationship between arts therapies and traditional healing. 
So Petro, back to you and back to this PhD program. You've now been running it for two years? Mm, it's 2016, yeah. We're in our fourth year, yeah. What have you learned from implementing it and how would you like to take it further and improve on what you started with? I'm going to answer that by talking to something that we wanted to talk to and haven't yet, which is the decolonial piece. What I've learned from it is in the way in which we are doing this, we are connecting students who would not necessarily otherwise be connected to the scholarly space, the institution. What I've learned is that when the power is down in Zimbabwe, but my phone is charged, I can still access. So it's all about access. I can still access scholarship because my cell phone can still reach Johannesburg. When I am an under-resourced student, but I have access to Wi-Fi and a cell phone, so I don't need to be resourced to access scholarship if we do it this way. I also don't even have to be of a specific kind of student. So if my bandwidth is not big enough to allow for video, we can all switch off our video and we can run an audio like a conference call conversation still. And we can still all access the scholarship and the support. So that's the one thing. That's one thing I've learned. It's unbelievably versatile and it's a equalizer this project, the way in which we've done this. And it connects students who doesn't necessarily have access to international scholarship. It, it connects them to international scholarship through the supervisors from all over the place, for instance. And the other thing that I've learned is that my job in this, there's, there's like a third job, there's the student and supervisor relationship, but then there's the facilitative holding, the enabling of the container, the containment, which is very strongly related to our own field. The creating the safe space for the PhD inquiry process, because doing a PhD is a scary thing. And we have to do two things. We have to keep the standard high and make it safe for a student to stretch towards that standard. So creating stretch and motivating students to go for that stretch is the role this process can play. Because we've identified the need not only to build scholarship, but be to build scholarship of a particular standard. And the, where I'm going with this, the big need that we haven't answered, I know how to answer it, but it requires funds, is that the cohort, it's not like a master's group who might all have started in one semester and have all submitted their proposals in a similar month and are going through the ethics clearance in a similar a PhD student cohort they're all over the spectrum and a PhD can take anything from three to five years so they're all over the place if I want I can't go and create a program where we now gonna all have a workshop on proposal writing because of the 11, two might be there, but they might not be in the same place around proposal writing or have the same questions. So what needs to happen is we need to create a library of online accessible, they want videos, so let's aim for videos that have titles like choosing the appropriate method 
or how to process and interpret your data or how to complete an ethics process and have those accessible to students as and when they need it on their journey. And that would look like a video on the topic and a interactive conversation between the supervisor who presents that piece and two students who bring their actual study to the supervisor and asks specific application questions. That's what the next step is. One last question from me. I'm struck when you speak about scholarship that you don't seem to refer to reading. Do the students get to do reading? Are they expected to do reading? You describe the solution as videos for the students and interaction with each other. Yeah, because reading is it's completely assumed. How do you do a PhD without reading? But it's building the bridge between everything I've read and my specific interdisciplinary, context-bound study. That bridge can only be built by me understanding how I... So even if we have a video on what are the boundaries of a creative PhD or PhD that includes a creative component, understanding the reading and the scholarship, like Understanding the reading around that and knowing how that reading applies to my specific contextual, intersectional, interdisciplinary study is tricky and needs conversation, supervision and connection. But none of what we're doing replaces the usual understanding of what PhD scholarship and research is about. And for your students scattered around the continent on often unreliable internet, maybe just mobile phone connection. How do they get access to the reading? Two ways, through the online library system, so pen and thing and all the electronic material, and their supervisor or their peers. So peers who've copied a section of a chapter can easily just email it. So they share reading if the reading isn't directly because their friend might be on campus and can go to the library and fetch a book and, yeah, help me access. Yeah, that's how. Petra, congratulations again on the award and good luck taking this forward and developing it along the lines that you've outlined. And Warren, thank you as well for coming in and giving us, I think, a very much better and clearer background on what DFL is about and, again, where you're going to with it. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, and Dr. Petro Janssen van Fieren, the head of the new PhD program in Drama for Life, and the head of Drama for Life, Warren Nieb. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts. The music, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvia and is used under a Creative Commons license.